Welcome to the Who Cares podcast brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. Hello and welcome back to Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars. Today, Ryan and I are pleased to bring to you Dr. Jamie Sclera, and she is a Associate Professor of Political Science and International Studies in the College of Behavioral and he Behavioral and Social Sciences at Georgia Southern University. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Now, Jamie, I know that you do a lot of work in international relations, international studies, and you've shared with me some projects you've been working on, and I read over your CV, and I'm gonna be honest here, I think I know what you do, but I'm really not sure. <laughs> Could you maybe sum up sort of what you're studying and what your research is based in so I have a better idea and make sure I'm on the right page? Sure. So in international relations, which is the subfield of political science uh, to which I belong, one of the key questions is how we get countries to cooperate with one another. And essentially that's what I study. Um, are the mechanisms by which states work together and how they create what we call international organizations to facilitate their cooperation. So an international organization is just a group of states, usually three or more, um, that has an institution, so a headquarters, some kind of government type structure, and also is usually um, given a purpose by an international treaty or international law. And so what I study is how countries interact with those organizations. Okay, so sort of like if I'm a country, I'm sending you an MOU to say, hey, we're going to trade in, I don't know, cats. And so now we have a trade agreement, and then Ryan wants to come in and be a country, and he's going to offer you a better deal than I am. So now maybe you're dealing with him and not me. And how that affects the trade systems? Yeah, so that kind of scenario would be governed by the World Trade Organization, which is mm -hmm. one of the international organizations that I study. So. Essentially, the idea is that the World Trade Organization um, would hopefully facilitate our trade in cats, which actually there are laws about how you can trade animals, so that's not a far-fetched idea, but... That's terrifying. I don't, I don't want to scare anybody trading cats. But. Hey, I got value in cats. Right. I, got a, I got a plan for them if somebody could just come up with a solution. There are rules for, a, for trade in a lot of things, actually. <laughs> Well, so then the World Trade Organization is sort of a, a governing body of all this trade. Does, does that absolve the countries then from making their own deals with other countries? Where's the sovereignty come in? Yeah, that, so that's the million dollar question is how do states balance sovereignty, which is their rights to govern how they see fit within their territory and also cooperate? Um, and that's a question that, you know, we've been studying in my field for hundred years, I guess. Um, but the World Trade Organization has sort of a framework for all countries to work um, within, and then countries are free to make their own agreements. So they can make um, agreements kind of on a regional level, like the European Union or the United States with Canada or Mexico, um, or they can make sort of indivi individual bilateral agreements as well between two countries. So are these international organizations uh, designed to promote peaceful relations, or because we've seen we've seen these uh, agreements fall apart and uh, there's a lot of conflict about them, and I'm kind of curious if it, if they've worked and what you see as the future of these international organizations. Yeah, so that's kind of the 
centerpiece of what I'm working on now is thinking about how um, the demand for and support for these organizations has changed over really the last 30 years or so. Um, so the goal, I think, in the 1930s, 1940s was definitely to promote peace and trade. And the idea was that countries can't do it on their own because we've had these major world wars. So we need something happening above the level of a country, a supranational entity. Um, but then, you know, with the end of the Cold War and um, kind of rise in other kinds of conflict, and I think really also prosperity in general in the 90s, um, there's been kind of this backlash against organizations thinking maybe we don't need them or maybe they don't work the way we wanted them to. Um, and so this is sort of the challenge we see today, I think. And uh, some of your more recent work is focused on Brexit mm -hmm. and the EU. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and some of the implications that uh, that breakup might have for, for us and, and for the rest of the world? Yeah, so I think Brexit is a really good example of um, a country, the UK, that was kind of a centerpiece of the European Union, one of the most powerful countries in the EU, um, largest contributors to the budget, kind of most trade volume, right? Um, but it was really this question of sovereignty, of would they be better off alone that led to them ultimately um, leaving the EU. Um, and so I think kind of there are a couple of things we can wonder um, now, which is what does this mean for the EU? What does this mean for cooperation generally? Um, and I think it hinges on whether or not the UK is successful after having left. Right, so certainly they're going to want new trade deals, and that would be with the United States. So we potentially, um, you know, have some room to renegotiate um, the way we've done business with the UK. Um, but there's a lot of instability too, and markets tend to not like instability. So, um, yeah, a lot of unanswered questions, I think, still. Um, they really, the UK has really only been out of the EU for less than a year now, or right about a year, um, and there's still a lot to work out. I know when I was listening to some stuff about the UK leaving the EU, a lot of it had to do with their trade with France on the, on the continent, um, but I just want to back up one thing just in case our listeners aren't familiar with this. Um, and one thing I never quite figured out is, is Brexit just the name they gave to the UK leaving the EU? Or yes. Is it something else? No. So it's the combination of Britain and exit. So oh. Brexit. And so, um, so when perfect sense. <laughs> so when other countries threaten to jo to leave, actually, we've we've seen like Brexit, which would be Greece exiting, or Frexit, France oh, exiting. Okay. So yeah. So that's. But it's officially, I think, the UK withdrawal is what this. Is what know, it is. Yeah. So, but everyone calls it Brexit. I think. Yeah. So when you think about Europe. And, and all the different states and, and countries that they have over there, if Germany has something to get to England or the UK, they're usually going to come through France, and how is that import-export dollar going to matter? And then, I mean, just financial, as far as what money is exchanging hands and what currency is, is being used, has got to have an implication in this. Yeah, so when I talk about this with friends or with students, I ask them to imagine um, that you're driving down 95 going into Florida and suddenly it's not only agricultural um, products that you're supposed to pull off for, but now it's everything, right? 
Um, you're supposed to have your identification checked, your currency checked, everything in your car checked, and there might be a tax on all of those things. Um, so when the UK was part of the EU, that didn't exist in that same way. So passports were still checked um, because the UK was not part of what we call the Schengen area, which is open borders for movement of people, but there were open borders for movement of goods. And so um, now that they've left, essentially all of those goods will be taxed when they enter the UK. And it's really an astonishing amount of taxes because the EU is the UK's largest trading partner. So you just sort of raise the price of all of these goods and services and financial transactions um, that didn't previously exist. So it'll be interesting to see how that's passed on to the consumer. Do we have a lot of those trade goods that are going to eventually end up in the United States that are coming through Europe, or, or not coming through Europe, but coming through the UK, or are they coming through a different port? That's the, I think that was the UK strategy in terms of um, leaving, was that they would seek trade deals with the British Commonwealth countries, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, but also the United States. Um, that will be governed by the World Trade Organization system. So there will still be a reduced kind of level of taxes on them, but um, you know, kind of what that remain, what that will ultimately look like, I think, remains to be seen as we negotiate those deals. Jamie, I'm I'm, uh, I'm curious here. The the podcast is called Who Cares, mm -hmm. and so what I'd like you to speak to, uh, if you can, uh, the ultimate goals of your work, what you hope to achieve, and why people should be interested. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I guess for me, um, one of the things that we've seen in the new administration, the Biden administration, is that they have identified four crises, um, overlapping crises. So obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, the subsequent economic crisis, racial inequality, and climate. And all of those things have international causes or implications. Um, and so I think kind of international issues and international cooperation is really at the forefront now um, of what's happening here in the United States and what's happening really around the world. Um, and that's not necessarily a great thing because we're sitting here in our masks, you know, because of the pandemic. But um, I think what it's done is it's highlighted the fact that international trade, international tourism, movement of people, science, we've been talking about that, kind of collaboration on science. All of those things matter to us on a personal level, whether we really know it or not. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of a puzzle that I'm trying to figure out, a lot of scholars in my area are trying to figure out, is how we can work together, still respecting each other's sovereignty, respecting each other's differences, but work together for the common good. Um, and I think that's kind of uh, hopefully something that's important to us here in Statesboro, I think it is, and um, ultimately sort of more broadly than that. So I think, yeah, it brings up the question again that Ryan just asked is, let's think about our, our people just here where our, our university is located in Statesboro and Savannah, Georgia and Liberty County and Hinesville. And we've got shopkeepers, we've got business owners, we've got some industry, and we don't often think about how do we take that and put that in a bigger context and what, mm -hmm. what could these sort of relationships or these things like the European Union or Brexit or Grexit or whatever the heck you call it. <laughs> sure. What, what's it, um, what sort of impact could we potentially see, good or bad, 
on on our local businesses and industries? Yeah. Well, I think um, one obvious um, impact would be tourism. So, you know, I I grew up in Florida and tourism is a major industry. I think it's an important industry here um, in this part of Georgia as well. And so um, as individuals are sort of restricted from movement or that's made more difficult. uh, And what I mean by that is now all UK citizens have to get new passports. Mm right, because they're not EU citizens anymore. So their citizenship has changed and those rights have changed. Um, And so that could have some impact on tourism. Um, I know that there are businesses in Statesboro and Savannah that uh, have international offices or um, international connections. Um, One time I was flying out of the Savannah airport, I think was someone from JCB um, that was sitting next to me and he was actually British, you know, so whatever is happening in that country in terms of business regulations or um, access to investment and things like that, that could have an impact on the relationship that we have here um, in terms of our business growth or trade um, or even our ability to to travel overseas, I think, too, um, to the UK. And the United States has a long-standing special relationship with the UK, we call it. And um, so I think whatever happens there naturally sort of impacts us in a lot of ways. Jane, I'm curious what brought you to uh, study international relations? That's a great question. Um, I actually studied abroad as an undergraduate student. Um, I was sort of interested in all things kind of social sciences, but I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. And I studied abroad um, in college, went to Madrid. And during that time period, they were transitioning to the Euro. And my host mother was talking about how that was going to change prices and you know kind of have all of these implications for her um, and it just made me think about how government and something sort of so abstract like currency and currency value could really impact people's lives um, and so that sort of got me on this path of thinking about um, how what happens in a country impacts citizens but also kind of how the relationship between countries so the European Union how that impacts individuals so so you're interested in these unseen forces that, <laughs> that have that have impacts on individuals sure yes interesting yeah, yeah. Well, really and, and I was just sitting here thinking we're, we're talking a lot about the European Union and, and its effects on the United States I'm assuming also it goes the other way where oh, sure. so like we're looking to which I think is great to raise our our minimum wage to $15 over years but I'm like people do realize that if you're going to have to pay more, you're going to have to charge more. Mm-hmm. So that's just going to keep increasing, and are we really making a difference? So, mm-hmm. uh, and it also, I'm assuming, goes to the East as well. So we've got trades with Japan and China, and how their trade is affected through the European Union and, mm-hmm. and the UK, and we've got to think about their trade negotiations. So it's not just us in the UK. It's us, the UK, all the UK's partners, all of our partners combined. I think, yeah. I think there's a term, they call it the butterfly effect. The butterfly, yes. What seem to be relatively minor changes in, in one uh, distinct country can have ramifications across the world. And, yeah. And I really love the, the focus on uh, the well-being of the populations mm-hmm. that are being served yeah. uh, by these governments and these, these forces that we generally see as abstract. and. Uh, they're certainly invisible at times, mm-hmm. but uh, you know the focus should always be on the on the, the people that are impacted. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing I um, encourage my students to do when we talk about trade, because it can seem really abstract, is to just walk around the grocery store and look at where your fruits and vegetables, meat are coming from. Um, and all of those rules about how you can harvest food and sanitary rules about meat handling and rules of origin about where it comes from, all these things that are really abstract and technical, at the end of the day, it does impact the price of chicken that you're buying at the grocery store, whether you think about it or not. And so I think, you know, that's kind of the goal for us as educators is to help people become more aware so that they can be more informed and then, um, I guess, kind of better citizens all around, right? But that's very true. You know, I, I think about the things that I buy that are definitely imported, and I think about the things that I buy that are, are domestic. Mm -hmm. And even domestic, just crossing state lines sometimes becomes, um, you know, a legitimate issue. I mean, I'm, I'm old school. I think about, you know, the movie um, Cannonball Run when they were trying to, what is it, Coors or something? They were trying to get it from the Rocky Mountains to the south. Um, you know, people are constantly trying to find ways to manipulate systems, but in taking it back to the people for a second, we've had a lot of suffering, of course, prior to the pandemic, especially in Africa and some of our other third world countries, where we've got large amounts of refugees. Mm -hmm. And so now we're getting refugee populations that are becoming, for lack of a better term, citizens of countries that are not their home country. Mm -hmm. is, how is that or is it, I mean, I'm assuming it's impacting, but how, how is that affecting what we're doing with these countries and these trade unions? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you look at why people voted one way or another in the Brexit referendum in 2016, it people who wanted to remain in the EU wanted to remain because of economic benefits, what we were just sort of talking about trade primarily. Why people wanted to leave is related to your question, because of immigration and this sort of pressure, especially from not necessarily immigration from within the EU, but immigration from what the EU calls third country nationals. So individuals mostly from the Middle East and North Africa region coming seeking refugee status um, in the EU and sort of the pressure that that's put on um, the EU social services in these in countries. Um, education services in countries and it's made more complicated in the EU because once you enter you're free to move um, basically anywhere there are open borders and so it can be very difficult to track individuals um, and not in a negative way but just to track sort of the needs of individuals mm -hmm. right um, and that puts pressure on national governments and so that really has been a major issue for the EU since 2015. Um, the number of refugees that have entered the EU has been you know, astounding. Um, unfortunately, many people have died trying to cross into the EU, and of course that has um, sort of humanitarian implications for sure. But that was obviously a pressure um, point for UK citizens in terms of leaving. Um, well, and it, I think it's similar to what we've face here sometimes with our DACA programs and, you know, at what point are you forcibly brought here as an infant or a child and you've grown up here only to find out that you're not technically a citizen, but your opinion matters. So, um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think these pressures are, are really important for countries to 
address, you know, on the one hand, it says something very positive about our country, the United States, and it says something very positive about a lot of EU countries that individuals want to go there, that they see that as a promise for a better life, for freedom, for, um, you know, economic mobility, social mobility, um, and really, in the case of refugees or asylum seekers, it's because they literally have fear for their own life, their own safety at back home. And so on the one hand, that's a great thing for us that we are seen that way, I think, um, anyway. But then there are, you know, kind of the question is, what do we do for those individuals? Mm -hmm. And how do we balance that with the needs of our own citizens? And I think, um, you know, when you experience a period of financial crisis, which um, Europe had from about 2008 to about 2012, it lasted a little bit longer there than here in the United States. When you have that period um, of crisis, and then now the pandemic, you know, that really causes tensions to, um, I, kind of, I think, escalate a little bit because um, there's concern about sort of how you take care of everyone, right, that, right. that's there. Um, I don't think any country has a great solution to that, but that's not exactly my area of research either, so. Um, We're working on it, I guess. Yeah. Are these tensions over sovereignty uh, versus joining international coalitions new historically? Uh, are they unique, or do we go through periods of this mm -hmm. occasionally? That's a good question. I think this particular tension um, is a little bit unusual in the sense that the amount of sovereignty that's been ceded to these organizations is so much greater than ever before. You know, I think this has been sort of the challenge of international cooperation since the start of the state system, if you want to think historically um, about that, sort of this tension between what you, what you retain and what you give up in terms of rights of a state. Um, I think where it's really particularly salient is that many countries have given up so much more sovereignty in so many more areas than ever before. And the idea of pulling that back is, is really challenging. And I think that's why so many of us are kind of waiting to see what happens with the UK, because if it goes well, then perhaps that will decrease some of this pressure, right? Because states can kind of pull back if they, um, if they feel they need to. If it goes poorly, then, you know, I don't know what that means in terms of um, cooperation. Is it, you know, you're sort of locked in or, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. So I think we're waiting to see. Um, but I think the tension's always been there. I think it's just greater now. Because if you look at the EU, for instance, it's trade, it's finance, it's citizen rights, um, it's political decisions, it's security decisions, it's all across the board um, now. And I think moving more and more um, toward a sort of federalist state like the United States. Well, and that, you know, Ryan's question is so poignant, you know, is this cyclical? Is this something we can go back and look in history and say, you know, something similar like this happened, this was the outcome? Because you said we were, we're waiting to kind of see when do we cross the threshold of, okay, we've seen, now we do something? Because mm -hmm. I'm guessing the ramifications for this are 10, 20 years down the line. Yeah. I think the biggest example we would use would be the failure of the League of Nations in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the United States didn't support this international effort because of our um, domestic politics of isolationism, many point to that as... Um, not managing Germany's grievances after World War I and therefore sort of allowing the rise of the Nazi party. Um, and so 
you know, I don't know that we're there, right? I don't, I don't want to say that, but I think um, we have seen instances where international cooperation has failed because of um, isolationist pressures. And so I think that's where some people would be very concerned about the future of the EU because the UK has left. But that being said, there is still very strong support for um, the European Union. And frankly, the United States has supported it. We, um, we were champions of the European project in the 40s and 50s. And a lot of the Marshall Plan funds were used to reconstruct Germany kind of under um, the idea of something like the European Union. So. Um, yeah, so hopefully it's positive. It is kind of interesting to think that the decisions that were made, I mean, we know decisions that are made in the past are going to affect the future, but you can almost take this today directly back. You can trace its lineage, so to speak, to things that we made decisions of in the 30s and 40s that, you know, just trying to do right by people in all the different ways it could have happened. Yeah. And I think, going back to Ryan's question before, what happened in World War One and World War Two really did create, I think, a demand for cooperation that we don't necessarily see today. And I think that's probably part of why there's a challenge, is that the generations that lived through that period um, and understand how horrible it was um, are not around anymore. And so we don't have that kind of... Um, some scholars call it like the specter of conflict, right? We don't have that looming over us to encourage sort of peaceful cooperation. Um, and so I think that could be part of why this is particularly challenging today. Although young people are generally in favor of um, cooperation. Uh -huh. So when you looked at the Brexit vote, people from 18 to 35 overwhelmingly voted to remain in the EU. And it's because they see the opportunities of movement, um, you know, living, working, studying abroad. Um, so maybe there's hope in, in that respect. Yeah. That's really interesting. So maybe uh, the reason for this, this movement toward more sovereignty is because we've lost sight of the reason that uh, these countries came together in a cooperative way. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. And I think, um, you know, especially in the United States, I think we can see that, right? So questions about our involvement in NATO, for instance, which were um, kind of at the forefront of the last presidential administration. You know, NATO was created by the United States. Um, NATO primarily has worked in the, the most recent years to sort of combat terrorism, which has been a major foreign policy issue for the United States. So, yeah, I think without sort of a broader understanding, it can be difficult to, to see reason to belong to these international organizations. Well, and I guess also if you think about the United States as its own EU, I mean, if we had not created the United States, we would be separate countries. Sure. And how we all have one sort of common identity as United States citizens, but each state still has its own unique identity. Mm -hmm. There may be fear that you're going to lose the identities of the different countries and, and again, the different sovereignty. but. Mm -hmm. So we sort of do have a, a sort of a blueprint of, look, mm -hmm. this is what happened when the United States came together. Mm -hmm. Let's learn from what we didn't do well. Yeah, and that, and that is a legitimate concern. It is a legitimate concern to think about protecting what's special about your heritage, your culture, your um, way of life, and also recognizing um, the inequalities that exist in kind of these um, larger, more federal government structures and 
the fact that, you know, like in the United States, there are some states that are better off than others and, um, you know, kind of coming to terms with how to deal with that, that's not an easy thing in the United States. It's not an easy thing in, in the European Union either. Um, and so, yeah, that's a good kind of analogy, I think. Do you have any other questions, Ryan? No, thank you. This is really, really fascinating. But I, w I will remark that Jamie is wearing her College of Behavior and so Behavioral and Social Sciences mask proudly. I yeah. thought it was and appropriate like, today. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you. I do have one final question for you. Sure. Um, and that is, let's say I have some young people at my house or some teenagers, and they're sort of kind of interested in this. What sort of resources would you direct parents to or for people who just want to know more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think one thing to think about is to read as much as you can. Um, a variety of news outlets. We can get international news um, pretty easily now in the United States. So I always encourage my students to read a variety of um, sources. I think learning a, a second language is um, a great skill to have. Um, because it allows you again sort of more access to um, more information, which is always a good thing. Um, as Ryan pointed, you know, brought out, travel has been really important to me. Studying abroad has been really important to me. So I think um, taking classes, educating yourself. The European Union um, has a lot of resources on its website um, and just sort of general for um, really young scholars, you know, elementary students, um, all the way up through, um, you know, practitioners, policymakers. So there's a lot of information um, available and certainly, you know, of course, I'm going to say take a government class, a, a civics class, an economics class, right? And um, learn some basic, you know, fundamentals that help you kind of better consume um, the media, better, you know, converse about these issues. I think that's really important for people. That is such such great advice. Um, we have to know ourselves before we know others. And that's perfect for the way we're going to end our podcast here today. Um, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Again, you. My guest has been Dr. Jamie Sclera, an associate professor of political science and international studies in the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Georgia Southern University. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.